All right. Okay. So, hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, with me today is Aaron Heft, currently serving as a Sergeant First Class in the Army National Guard. Aaron works as the NCOIC, uh, that's NCO in charge, of the Army National Guard's Leader Development Program, where he uses lessons from the past to train and prepare today's soldiers for the battlefield. Today, he joins us to discuss the American 28th Keystone Division in World War I, a unit of primarily Pennsylvania National Guardsmen with whom Aaron served for 15 years. Now, this talk will not be exclusively, excuse me, exclusively about the 28th time in the Meuse-Argonne, so you will hear about some other battles and engagements elsewhere uh, along the Western Front. And folks, there is a video version of this episode as well that will be uploaded to the uh, Battles of the First World War podcast, little known and generally neglected YouTube channel. Uh, it will be shared in social media so you can check out um, anything. Well, you can check out uh, Aaron's awesome uh, office here, which has tons of uh, 28th Division memorabilia hanging up. Um, so with that, like to go ahead and get started. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, as I said, I've been a listener for uh, several years now, so it's pretty cool to get the chance to be on the show as well. This is so cool. And uh, so folks, uh, right before we started recording, uh, Aaron told me that um, when he conducted a staff ride in, was it 2018, 2019? Just the end of 2019, yeah. Uh, 2019. So he actually had uh, people listen to this podcast um, as like required listening. So yay. All right. There's a, that's pretty awesome. Um, all right, Aaron. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? I doubt the intro uh, did you any justice whatsoever. So please, the floor is yours. Sure. No, I think you you got it pretty well. So we run a variety of leader development programs. Uh, our goal is really to try and expand uh, junior leaders' awareness of the Guard's larger role in national defense. And we, we do that through seminars and trainings around the country, uh, interacting with both military and civilian agencies that the Guard works with. Um, now, with that, I also focus specifically um, it, with a program called Combat Field Studies, and what that program does is it uses staff rides as an educational tool for soldiers, uh, you know, critical thinking, uh, leadership examples, and even some modern uh, tactics and doctrine that can be drawn from historic battles. And we'll take soldiers to uh, battlefields around the United States and uh, when COVID's not getting in the way over to France, um, and we'll take their lineage units experience in combat and use that as a teaching tool. Wow, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, I've seen a lot of your uh, pictures on Instagram, like going to Antietam, Gettysburg and everything. So that's that's fantastic. Um, I do. So here's here's the personal question that I said I was going to ask you before we started recording. So it, it is personal. So certainly not going to touch anything else in today's climate. But so I wanted to know. And it's been some time. I wanted to know if if, you know, if, if the grieving process is over. So. Back in early in the year, you had a bit of a field stash, and it's <laughs> and it's now gone. I wanted to know if you know how you, how you've taken that. Is is that okay? Like everything? Yeah, it's it's been a struggle. Uh, you know, as a career infantryman, uh, you know, going to the field, growing a mustache is kind of a thing. 
and I considered the first couple months of COVID to be a fuel problem. So uh, I grew out a pretty, pretty bad mustache. And, uh, nice. you know, it's, it's been quite a while since it's been gone. And I, I've, I've adjusted to that. Uh, my wife very, very much so has adjusted to it being gone. So. <laughs> nice. But maybe we'll see a return soon. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, I, I mean, I understand. So this this nonsense I have around my mouth, I call this like to anyone who will ask and Quite honestly, not many people do, but this is my veterans goatee of righteousness right here. So this is, you know, I honestly, I can't wait for veterans day so I can just walk around my work and just tell people like, you're welcome for the day. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. All right. So that was it. There was, there's no other trick questions here. So, <laughs> so, um, so getting back to, uh, the great war. So what like sparked your interest in the great war? Uh, so was it, did, did interest in the 28th division come first or was it like the other way around? Like, so how did, how did this start for you? So, uh, believe it or not, I think interest in the 28th division started before I ever entered, uh, the 20th division. So I remember like for great war specifically, you know, every Sunday on my drive to church, we would pass one of those, uh, spirit of the Doughboy statues. So it was in Easton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and I always just thought it was such a, a cool monument. Uh, I was always interested in it. And, you know, I, I started taking an interest in Pennsylvania history, Pennsylvania civil war regiments, going to Gettysburg as a young kid, that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, as I, as I got older, that kind of morphed and progressed into all eras. Um, and then, you know, specifically for, for World War I history, I think, uh, you know, I was in processing at my first unit, uh, Charlie Company, the 111th Infantry. And uh, up on the wall there was a, was a framed photo of the, the company's uh, only Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Sergeant uh, James Mestrovich. And, uh, you know, like it was kind of one of those things in processing, like, who is this guy? What did he do uh, to, to earn this this honor? And what is his story? So that was kind of one of the driving factors for pushing me down the road into uh, to studying the Great War. That's so cool. That's so cool. Wow. So you were in, in the um, 111th. All right. So um, so with, with the 28th, um, what is the story of, of the division's formation? So... Uh, so were, were its National Guard regiments, were they, were they already being alerted or, or federalized um, as the, the whole prospect of war approached, uh, you know, April 6th of 1917, like the, the day we declared war? Were they already kind of like on, on alert? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So to back it up even further, the division has kind of this title as being, uh, it's, it's official but unofficial, the, the oldest division in the Army. So the 28th uh, is actually you know, initially formed as a division in 1879. So the Pennsylvania National Guard restructures uh, at that point, and they decide to go with a division formation for the entire PA Guard. So from 1879 on, they're structured as a, as a division um, until, you know, now they're, they're more than that. They're division plus at this point. Um, but, you know, they're, they're formed in 1879 as the Pennsylvania Division. Um, in 1916, uh, June of 1916, when they're called up for the Mexican border, uh, um, incursions. So they're going to go down there and they're going to serve as the seventh division uh, of, the, of the United States Army. So they're going to have time as a full division down there on the border as well. Now, 
just before the war uh, is declared and, and immediately after, a lot of these units that had just returned from the border service in 1916, they're going to be called back up to guard key infrastructure in Pennsylvania. So okay. you've got big industry in Pittsburgh with, with the, a lot of the steel production. Um, you've got a lot of rail lines and key bridges that are going to supply uh, the Department of Defense uh, in the early stages of U.S. mobilization. So mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Guard units are going to be called up all over Pennsylvania to guard this key infrastructure. Um, so they're going to start off, you know, really before a lot of other units are even called up, they're going to start off with that that other mission for the Guard, that domestic uh, defense. Wow. And this goes a bit aside, but was um, I know a lot of this is, uh, you know, kind of moving towards that war footing, but also like the the fear of sabotage and, and um, you know, German spies and infiltrators, stuff like that, right? Like um, um, along those those lines. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. So the, the, so how did the, like, um, so you said that the 28th was, was called the seventh division and then it gets rebranded as the, as the 28th, because I believe AEF, the, the numbering system, it went, um, so from like 26 forward to 42 to 42, it was national guard units, right? Yes. Yep. So you got to think uh, you've got your, your first two units from the guard to go overseas or really your bookends there. You got the 26th division kicking it off with the Yankee division. And then all the way on the other end of the line, you got the 42nd rainbow division. Now that's going to expand beyond that in later wars, but yeah, for, for the purposes of, of world war one, that's how we're going to number the guard units. Okay. Okay. All right. And so where did the 28th um, conduct its initial training? Like, and uh, did it, did it do it as a division complete or did it do it like regiments in their own separate posts, like throughout Pennsylvania? So that actually kind of goes along with your last question about the, the changing the name of the division. So initially they're going to get called up. They're going to do their local armory attendance, their medical in processing administration stuff, all the boring S1 stuff we do now. Yep. And we're about to move all that's going to go back on uh, in the state. Now, within the state of Pennsylvania, we have a mobilization site that we've used in the Spanish-American War. We're going to use it again in World War I. That's a place called Mount Gretna, which is very close to today's Fort Indian Town Gap, if you're familiar with that. It's kind of the predecessor to Fort Indian Town Gap. So it's going to report to to Mount Gretna. And then from there, once they're all organized, prepped, got all their equipment drawn, they're going to move down to Camp Hancock in Augusta, Georgia. And that's where that restructuring is going to take place. As you mentioned, um, they're going to restructure the divisions in the AEF model, this much expanded size. So that old 7th division that we had on the border, it's going to look totally different uh, in in Camp Hancock. So what they're going to do um, is they're going to take all these small little guard regiments from around the state and they're going to amalgamate them and they're going to make these larger regiments that, that fit that AEF model. So like, for example, my old unit, the 111th, they're going to take the 18th Pennsylvania, which is a very old uh, militia unit from out in Pittsburgh, nicknamed the Duquesne Grays. They actually drilled out of like a, an old castle in Pittsburgh. It was pretty cool looking. Um, so they're going to um, take the 18th and they're going to amalgamate them with the 6th, which is from like the Philadelphia Norristown area. And okay. the two of those units are going to come together and they're going to make the 111th. Now, Uh, You'll see this a lot with guard units during this early stage of the war. There's going to be a lot of consternation about losing this historical lineage and this this local unit identity. Um, But the 28th is going to push on ahead with that. And they're going to 
They're going to rebrand the, the old Pennsylvania division as the 28th with a brand new set of federal numbers, which we're, we're still using today in the guard, really. Um, wow. Mostly our designations now. And your, your 111th, <clears throat> excuse me, that is the, um, is that the ones that, that are called the, the Ben Franklin associ- associators? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, I'll give you a quick, quick summary of that. So back in 1747, uh, they're going to found this organization called the Associated Regiment of Foot, Philadelphia. Uh, it's a Quaker state, so we weren't, we didn't have a militia law. We didn't have a standing militia in Pennsylvania. So to get around that, they started an association. And that's, uh, that's where the Pennsylvania National Guard gets its start. So the associators are the oldest unit, and their lineage now is drawn, drawn through the 111th. Um, there were some companies in the 111th during World War One that would have had that lineage, um, but uh, some of it gets added later after the war. Fascinating stuff. That's so cool. So Ben Franklin's Associators is what is uh, one one of the nicknames. Awesome. Um, the commander of the of uh, the 28th. Um, can you tell us about him? Who was he, and what was his what was his background? Yeah, so that kind of also goes along with the the restructuring too. I think it ties right in. So one of the things that you're going to see happening um, at Camp Hancock, and and I mean you can take it one way or another. There's a lot of people who say there was a bias against the guard and guard leadership, um, especially within the regular army channels. But you're going to start to see a lot of leadership replaced. So you're going to start off with this guy Charles Clement um, in 1917. He is a Spanish American war veteran. He is a Mexican border uh, 1916 veteran. He started in the PA Guard all the way back in 1877 as a private. So this guy has had a ton of time in service. Wow. He's, he's about ready to age out. Now he's going to be part of that first group of uh, division commanders. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but so Pershing sends some over to observe combat. And yes. then they're supposed to come back and, and kind of adjust the training model. So he's going to go over, he's going to observe combat, and he's going to come back and promptly medically retire. That's going to be the end of his time uh, with the 28th Division in World War One. So uh, it's Charles Clement. He's going to be replaced by a guy named Charles Muir, who's going to be uh, the commander pretty much through the Argonne. Muir is a U.S. regular. He's a West Pointer. Um, he takes command in like December of 1917, um, and he's going to be at the helm for, for most of the war until he's elevated to a core commander level position. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, do, just to go back to Clemens, uh, is it Clemens? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Clement. Charles Clement. Clement. Um, just to go back to him. Now, his medical retirement, was that like very convenient? Like I know Pershing tried to, like he, he didn't, he kind of wanted young not young, but he wanted like a certain, a certain mold of, of general, like a, a, you know, not necessarily young, but like go-getters fit. I mean, I know he wanted to, to can um, Hunter Liggett, you know, for, for other reasons, um, you know, so w- was it kind of like that thing? Um, so, I mean, I think you could probably read into it some that way. I think, uh, I think it's also fair to say a guy that's been, you know, wearing the uniform since 1877 probably isn't ready uh, for what we're going to see in the battlefields in 1918. Right. So uh, I think it can kind of go both ways. He's spoken about very highly in the 20th division histories. Um, but uh, so is Muir. Muir was beloved by the rest of the guys in the unit. So awesome. um, I think you can kind of see a, a, a good gradual transition for the unit with that, that changeover. Right. Right. And Pershing was um, just for, for folks listening, um, general Pershing, the commander of the AEF was pretty rough on his commanders i mean he he demanded results and many you know 
at all levels of command, anyone who, and I, I don't want to make this sound, um, it, it's not, it's not like a political thing, but it's, uh, you know, anyone who wasn't showing the proper amount of aggressive spirit that, you know, up to Pershing standard, like they would be relieved, um, instantly. And that meant anyone. So, um, the fact that, uh, Charles Muir, you know, kind of survives in his position as division commander, uh, you know, and then is promoted upwards means that he was, he was probably a, a, a fairly tough, uh, you know, commander who, who got results. So, yeah. And, and like I said to you, the, the men really liked him to, to the point that when they're brought home in April of 1919, uh, they're actually going to bring Muir back as the division commander so that he can bring them home, participate in the, the parades through Philadelphia. He's actually going to hold very briefly a, a post-war uh, uh, command uh, in that in that area as well. So oh, that's the- fantastic. Oh, wow. wow that, that, that definitely says a lot um, about him. Wow. Um, all right. So. 28th is training down in um, Georgia. Okay, we've got we've got the the division is being formed. It's training up. We have the commander in place. Um, when did they deploy for overseas duty? So they're gonna they're gonna leave uh, April and May of 1918. So they're gonna start boots on the ground in, in May of 1918, and they're gonna trickle in uh, after that. But that's really your first arrival in Calais. Um, there's actually some really great footage uh, of them getting off the boats in Calais. And then, uh, you know, they're going to go train with BEF advisors. So they're drawing the SMLE rifles, uh, which I always thought was so cool. Cause you can actually see like the look of confusion on the private's faces as they're like looking at these SMLEs and trying to figure out how they're going to function. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. What a, so they, so when, once they arrive in France, they, they train up with the BEF, um, where did where did they do frontline service? Was it with the British or or did they serve frontline with the French? So they're gonna be they're gonna be spread out in these rear area trenches. Like for example, I think some of them around like Picardy, um, and they're gonna they're gonna do this kind of rear area training with the BEF. No real combat, um, just kind of like prepping and getting ready. But then they're gonna move in uh, to the French line um, right around like the the end of June uh, July time. Okay. Um, and they're going to, they're going to be right along kind of the Marne, um, at a very climactic moment for the Marne. So their first real combat action, uh, is going to be two platoons from the 111th, uh, one from a company and one from B company, um, are going to be sent on July 1st to attack, uh, Hill 204 and Chateau Thierry. Um, if you're familiar with the American monument that's there today with a little yeah. museum on it, that is Hill 204. So that is, that is where the first combat action of the 28th division is, um, these two platoons are attached to, I believe it's the French 153rd Infantry, and they're going to take that hill uh, in it. Well, they're going to attack that hill. They're not going to take it. Um, but it's going to be a pretty brutal, bloody fight, and they're going to perform very well there, um, decorated by the French for their actions. But that's their real first time in combat. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so that's their first live sector of the front. So what's the um, – what is the – so we have the 28th – you just gave me the first engagement with, with German forces. Like what is their, I guess my, my following question to that would be, what is their first engagement, like, like division level engagement with, with German forces? Yeah. So I think the, the second battle of the Marne is kind of your, your good example for that. You're going to see not really as a full division command controlling them, but pockets of the division all over the place. You're gonna have elements of the 109th, 110th, 111th, and 112th infantries as your four uh, infantry regiments in the division. They're gonna be embedded with French units all along the line. 
Okay. Um, and they're going to get hit by that, that counterattack. So, uh, for example, there's a very brutal fight uh, with the 109th Infantry, four companies from the 109th and the 110th as well, um, who are dug in with the French 128th Division on an area called Jalgan uh, and Sauvigny, I think is the other one. Um, and they're going to be dug in with these positions uh, with the French, and they're going to hit that uh, that German attack on July 15th. Now, what's going to happen is, and you'll, re- you'll read a lot of opinions about this, but essentially what's going to happen is the French, you know, they prepare to take the initial attack and then they withdraw to a second line and they're going to engage from that, that second line. Well, somewhere along the line, nobody passed that off to the men of the 109th. So when the uh, French army withdraws and they pull back, the 109th in, in Jalgan, they're going to take the brunt of that German attack. They're going to get cut off, surrounded. They're going to be forced to fight their way back. Um, now, this is a pretty climactic moment for the division. Um and their behavior there and their behavior in the Second Battle of the Marne is going to earn them uh, the moniker from Pershing, uh, Men of Iron, which is still a uh, you know iron division and Men of Iron, still a moniker and a nickname used by the division today. That's fantastic. Wow. All right. Wow. Okay. That is new. So one of the so the current episode I'm I'm writing is uh one of the sources is um is a book and, and a part of the title is like like the the iron division in the world war yeah. uh, so fantastic wow I, I didn't know the the background to all of that all right so what are some um so we've got chateau thierry um we've got jogon and, and Sauvigny. what are some other notable uh engagements or and slash actions of the 28th during the great war so I think you know what my all-time favorite is. You've probably heard me post or talk about it far too much. But, uh, you know, in, in August and into the beginning of September, there's going to be this action um, along the Vell River at a place called Feme and Femet. Um, you know, that's a town that's going to be initially taken by the 32nd Division, Wisconsin and Michigan National Guard. Yep. And the 28th is going to kind of leapfrog in and relieve them in Feme. Um, and if you've if you listen to your episode that you did on, on <laughs> yes. theme, and uh, if if you know any of your listeners are checking that out, um, this is pretty much one of. I mean, there's a reason it, it kind of strikes with me so much. Uh, it's not what you expect for a World War One battle. This is a brutal street fight. Yes. Um, this is house to house warfare, uh, flamethrowers, mortar barrages, hand grenades, uh, you know, maxims and show shots behind every corner. This is a, this is a rough fight. Um, and I think the other thing that really strikes me with it is just the pure volume of, um, you know, of, of valor awards that come out of this fight. I mean, this is like a 30 day fight uh, and you've got, you know, 30 to 40 distinguished service crosses, a congressional medal of honor, wow. uh, countless croix de guerres. And later when they're upgraded, the silver star citations come out of this. Um, and this is kind of that that pinnacle of, of World War One experience for the guys, especially in the 5-6 Brigade, the, the 111th and the 112th Infantry. Um, you know, every post-war mem- memoir from the division, uh, from those two units, is going to devote significant time to Fiend and Fiend and just the absolute nightmare that it was as a fight. And I know you've read Bob Hoffman's uh, yep. memoir. I yeah. Mean, Bob yeah. Hoffman talks extensively. I mean, he's, he's forced, he's cut off in the town, forced underground, you know, knocking the walls down in the basements to travel between them. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's just the guys that are trapped in Femet. Uh, you have other guys on the other side of the Bell River. Um, 
that are going to be forced across the river over and over again. There's going to be this hill nearby called Chateau Diablo, uh, mm-hmm. where you're going to have some you know terrific attempts to take these machine gun nests on top of the hill. And then even once they're in FEMET, they're going to have to hold it against, you know, German onslaughts. There's there's an entire company of the 112th Infantry that's nearly wiped out in town because they're, they're cut off by a box barrage and they're attacked right. by stormtroopers. So, I mean, that is probably, to me, FEMA and FEMET is the, is the fight that distinguishes the 28th Division in World War I, um, specifically the 5-6 Brigade. Um, but I mean, you, you can go on beyond that, as you've touched on in, in your most recent episodes uh, on the Argonne. You know, you've got uh, Apremont, Varennes, uh, Le Chantando, which is probably one of the other more brutal fights that the 28th Division faces uh, once they work their way into the Argonne. So I think those are the big names for 28th Division in World War One. Right. And uh, just for for listeners. So I have. um uh, Aaron is mentioning a, a, an episode that I've written. So I have written an episode on theme and FEMET. Um, it's currently available to uh, Patreon listeners. Um, quite honestly, if you like, just send me an email and I'll, uh, I'll share the episode with you. I mean, <laughs> I'll take a donation too. But other than that, verdunpodcast at gmail.com and I'll, I'll share it with you. So no, no worries there. Um, yeah, so, and that, um, I want to get into a question here. One of I actually didn't write it down, but later, um, just regarding like some some books uh, that that really touch on on that memoirs specific to the twenty eighth, and that is um, one of them is like you mentioned Bob Hoffman, um, and I believe it's called I I remember the last war, yep, and then there's the Harvey Allen, um, towards the flame, towards the flame, also a fantastic book, so. So those are two and folks I'll have um, I'll put some of the book names in the, in the episode notes um, so that you, you can have them uh, if you're interested in, in reading them. Uh, yeah. If I could touch on that real quickly, I mean, the 28th division is, is, is very lucky in, you know, immediate uh, post-war historiography. Um, they have a, a beautiful five volume, the blue book series where they cover the division's history, massively detailed covers all the pre-war guard units um, there's a bunch of smaller series uh, that that the state puts together out of Harrisburg um, on the on the 28th division. But what you're tapping on right there, veteran memoirs uh, in the 28th, it's just astounding the number of them. Like I have a stack right here on the bookshelf next to me. I mean, there's three from the 111th, there's two or three from the 112th, and at least one from the uh, the 109th, and, and even a uh, an MP company guy that that writes a memoir. So I mean, there are just a, a, a complete mass of resources on the 28th division. If you're interested in learning more about it, there's plenty out there. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. You definitely have to share some of those names with me. Sure. Um, so who are some of the, uh, some notable members of the division? I mean, of course we got Bob Hoffman, um, who was a uh, Lieutenant of, um, of infantry uh, fought at theme and um, um, he went on to, he became a big, like the first guy to really establish um, like weightlifting, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's really cool. Cause he starts off, he's a pre-war guardsman. He starts off the war as a corporal and okay. uh, he's, he gets a commission uh, during the war and ends up uh, coming home as a, as an officer in a pioneer infantry unit. Now, after the war, like you said, he gets professional bodybuilding. He's one of those guys. You always see the pictures of him flexing, you know, at the gym. Monstrous dude. Um, yeah, he was massive. And he used to he used to hang out at international weightlifting competitions 
with German bodybuilders that were veterans of the German army. So it's all in his, his book. It's pretty wild. Awesome. He goes on to, uh, to found the York barbell company. So if you awesome. ever, uh, been at the gym and you see those plates with the big York on the side, yeah, that's Bob Hoffman right there. That's awesome. Uh, it's done in the one eleventh. So, I mean, yeah, he's a classic guy. Herbie Allen, as you mentioned, uh, towards the flame, which I, I consider probably the best memoir of world war one out there. Um, it's, it's brutally honest and he doesn't hold back. So Herbie Allen becomes a pretty prolific writer. Um, he writes a ton of other books, Anthony Adverse, uh, several on the, uh, the, uh, American revolution, um, just a bunch of narrative stories. And, and he does another one. Um, it was like this, which is two short stories based on his time with the 111th in world war one, okay. um, basically like coming of age, of a, of a young soldier and coming to terms with having to kill. Um, and okay. then another one, which kind of talks about the the issues with command uh, overseas. So Herbie Allen is another great guy. He's actually buried down here in Arlington. Um, so I've, I've visited his uh, gravesite a couple of times. Now, beyond them, uh, you know, my all-time uh, favorite guy to talk about is James Mestrovich. Sergeant James Mestrovich is a, the division's first Medal of Honor recipient. Now, what makes him so cool is his backstory is just, probably the most American thing you'll ever hear. So he is uh, an immigrant here to the United States from what is now Montenegro at the time was Serbia. Um, he's going to come over and he's going to initially work in California with his family. Um, then he's going to make his way to Pennsylvania and he's going to be working in a hotel in 1916. And uh, a group of Red Cross um, doctors and nurses are getting ready to go over to Serbia to deal with the typhus epidemic. Okay. And he's going to be brought on as an interpreter. He's so inspired by the Americans that go over there and treat this epidemic that uh, upon returning to Pittsburgh, he enlists in the local National Guard unit. He basically says, and he says this in a, in, in a newspaper interview, um, you know, the, the experience of watching these Americans go and, and, and catch typhus and in some cases die uh, to help out his fellow countrymen. He's so inspired by it. He wants to give back to his new home. Oh, so he joins the Pennsylvania National Guard. He goes down on the Mexican border, comes back. He's called up for France uh, in that brutal street fight at Fim and Fimet. Uh, he's with C Company of the 111th. Uh, he's across the Vell River, and his company commander is shot down in the street um, and is laying there wounded when an intense artillery and machine gun barrage hits the, uh, the town square. Now, Mestrovich has made his way to cover. Um, he looks back, sees the company commander laying there wounded. He runs out in the barrage, lifts him on his back, and carries him back to safety, um, and he survives the incident. So, um, you know, Mestrovich is wounded. He's shot multiple times during that engagement. Uh, he goes to the hospital, eventually makes his way back to the unit against, <laughs> against doctor's recommendations, and uh, he is killed leading a patrol in the Argonne uh, just a week before the end of the war. So he uh, he's both a dramatic and inspiring story, but also one that's horribly depressing in the end. Yeah, as, as a lot of World War One stories are, but but you know to focus more on the positive, like seriously, like what what an American story, a uh, um, Montenegrin um, immigrant, you know, winds up fighting it for the for a Pennsylvania National Guard unit. I mean, like that is really doesn't get more American than that. That's fantastic. Um, what were the years of, of that American mission um, to Serbia and Montenegro for the, the, the typhus breakout? Typhus. So if I recall, if I recall correctly, the type, typhus epidemic begins um, like 1914 in, in Serbia. I mean, so you got to think, too, like they're 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 in the, the crux of the brutal Balkan portion of the war. They're not 
they're not really having the infrastructure to treat an epidemic while also fighting an international war um, and, you know, an invasion of their country. So, um, you know, I think around 1915 to 16, you start seeing these American missions go over um, and they, they start treating the civilian population. A lot of it's going to be, uh, you know, food aid as well as medical aid um, coming from the United States to Serbia. So, yep. And a lot of Americans saw the Serbians, too, as a victim early on in the war. I mean, even today, you know, they kind of look at them as, as a victim state. Right. Right. Oh, fantastic. Um, so we've got um, so I believe it was the 28th division. So going into the Mers Argonne now, um, I've got episodes that have talked um, a, a good, good deal about them. Um but I believe that is it true? Like they were the longest serving division in in the Mers Argonne. Like they're the ones who saw frontline service for the longest. Or, or uh, did, did somebody else get that? To so they're going to go. I, I don't think they're the longest serving. So basically, they're going to have this this initial mission with the kickoff. Uh, the twenty sixth September, they're going to step off, um, and then I think most of the division is is withdrawn from the main fighting by about like for October. So they're, they're not going to be in the main push very long. You know, as you recall, they're adjacent to the 35th division who's going to get hammered pretty badly in the opening uh, of the Argonne. And uh, you know, the 28th is, is just recovering from FEM and FEMET, the 56 brigades, you know, chock full of replacement soldiers. Um, There's your stereotype uh, comments from a lot of the members of the unit that they, um, you know, they, they didn't know how to fire their weapons. They were ill-trained. You know, a lot of these are guys coming directly from these, these replacement depots into the line. Uh, so they're going to have some trouble as well. I mean, they're going to face some pretty hard objectives. Le Chintandu is no joke. Um, that is a brutal, brutal fight. Uh, they're going to fight well there. But um, by the beginning of October, they're going to move to a, a quieter sector. Um, and they're still going to carry out patrols. They're still going to be participating, but they're not going to be the main push anymore because they, they've been bloodied too badly. Okay. And so where do they, um, where do they finish out the war? And so, and what was their, basically what was the division's service record at, at the end of, of hostilities on uh, 11th of November? Sure. So like I said, they're going to be kind of in this reserve line and oh, the, the name of the town is, is uh, escaping me right now. Oh, you're killing me. But um, yeah, so they're going to, they're going to pull back into this reserve sector um, and they're going to kind of be, like I said, continuing out patrols. They're kind of resting and refitting. Um, you know, you're going to have this, this ambush where Mesrovich is killed or they're basically they're moving one unit from, from one sector to another. And they're going to run into some, excuse me, some machine gun nests there um, and, and significant loss of life. It's about 50 casualties in, in C Company at that time. Um, so that's, you know, there's a lot like that going on. Um, you're going to have the field artillery elements from the 53rd uh, Field Artillery Brigade. We're going to continue being engaged. They're actually going to go all the way up to the um, the wipers uh, front and they're going to be up there. Was it wipers lease? I think is, is the yeah. front for that. Yep. Um, you know, by the end of the war, the division's going to rack, rack up uh, campaign honors for Champagne Marne, Ein Marne, uh, Wazan, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, and Mizargans, and, and Champagne and Lorraine as well. So for their, their training time. So they're going to have a pretty significant battle record as a division. Um, it's going to be about 14, a little, little over 14,000 casualties of that, uh, you know, over 2,000 killed in action. Wow. Wow. And that's, you know, um, so I know the, you know, um, 
So for listeners of um, American divisions in World War One were these mammoth organizations, you know, typical, uh, I believe, French and German divisions numbered around 12 to 15,000 guys. American divisions were 28,000 men. So um, and that was because Pershing wanted a lot of rifles on hand, like he wanted to be able to take casualties and continue fighting. So for the 28th division, you know, numbered by organization around 28,000 men for it to lose 14,000 guys. I mean, and that's primarily from the fighting regiments. That means, my God, pretty much every regiment was, was decimated at least like once over. Like, wow. Yeah. I, I, I left out to the machine gun battalions, uh, the 107th, 108th and 109th who are detached, uh, you know, detaching their, their guns to support these infantry units. They're firing, uh, massive machine gun barrages in Fiam and Fiamet. So these, and in, in, in the Argonne too, with great, uh, great effect. In fact, uh, 109th machine gun battalion, there's this great study that the war department did called infantry in battle, uh, mm-hmm. in, in like the twenties and thirties. And there's an entire section on, uh, the 109th and their preparatory fires, uh, in the Argonne before, uh, before the 28th division steps off. So, I mean, they, they are engaged heavily and they, they do a phenomenal job as well. Um, you know, in, in, in all of the 20s engagements. So, and by, um, just to go down the rabbit hole, just a little bit like this sure. infantry in battle talking about, um, the preparatory fires, is that the, the, um, like, uh, machine gun barrages? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so basically, uh, to, to look in this text, if you, if you're not familiar with it, you can get it online, uh, for free through, um, the combined arms research library that's run out of CGSC. Um, so if you go on Carl, as it's called in, in military nerd circles, uh, if you hop on Carl and you look up infantry in battle, um, it's this great kind of lessons drawn from, uh, the, the experience in the first world war. Um, and it's from all sides. So most of it's AEF, but you're also going to have a smattering of Russian and German, uh, and French units in there as well. I think some British even, uh, so you're going to have a couple, you know, different perspectives, but they take, uh, both good and bad leadership examples. And I glossed over it, but one of the bad examples, uh, is talking about the commander of the 111th, that theme and about how he is not forward enough to understand what's going on to his unit. Uh, while they're they're being engaged, so he's back in a command post. Uh, he doesn't see what his companies are going through uh, up on the line. But the positive example, like I said, the machine gun battalions of of the Keystone Division, um, getting down in the in the jump off trenches with the line units, observing where the objectives are going to be, and shaping and building their fires plans to to meet uh, the needs of the infantry units. Wow, fantastic! So doing taking the time to to do the recon to to um, to to know the ground that they're going to be working. Um, so basically like, like doing the research so that, so that they can best support um, the, the infantry moving forward. Yeah. That's, that's, Absolutely. Fantastic. that's fantastic leadership. Um, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, even with, with the example of the commander of the 111th, I, I firmly believe that like pretty much it, it, everything like in life, like offers a, a, a lesson, uh, it just depends, you know, if, if you're able to see it and and draw from it. So, you know, we, we can look at that and, and rather than, you know, I guess like, hey, yeah, like he, he was way, way, way too far back. Like, well, what's the lesson there? Like, you need to be further forward so you know what's going on on the ground, you know. So everything is a, is a, um, is a lesson. So awesome. Awesome, man. Wow. Fantastic. So this is a this has been a, a 
great talk on the 28th division. Um, and so the name is the, the nickname of the division is of course the, the iron division. Um, all you call it the keystone division for its patch. Um, Mm -hmm. is it actually called, I've always understood that it's called the the bloody bucket as well. That comes from world war two. Is that true? Or is that like myth? Yeah, no, that's that's accurate. The bloody bucket is uh, Blutiger Eimer, I think is a yes. translation. So that's going to come out of their experience in uh, World War II. It's going to be uh, a nickname um, that, that that comes from the German army for their patch on their shoulder, which uh, if you've ever seen it, it's a bright red keystone. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's going to be the World War II nickname. And a lot of people will call it that. The division uh, prefers to be known as the Iron Division because uh, yeah. it harks back to a time where they were taking less... Uh, uh, less brutal uh, frontline uh, casualties. If you look at uh, the 28th Division of World War II, they have a rough go of things. They seem to hit uh, patch after patch of just brutal, brutal fighting, um, you know, from from the Siegfried line to the Hurtgen, uh, and then into the Bulge. So, I mean, they just, they have a rough go. Um, but to go back to the, the Keystone designation, I think it's, it's worth noting, um, Pennsylvania goes by the name the Keystone State and the keystone right. symbol is something that's been used by the PA Guard all the way back to that, that founding date I was talking about for the division in 1879. Um, the state's going to designate uh, multicolored keystones, uh, different colors depicting different brigades, because, again, they're in this divisional formation. Right. So each brigade is going to have a separate color to, to denote which uh, unit they're from. Um, and so when, uh, you know, the war is coming to a close in October of 1918 and the divisions are starting to select their their uh, insignia for wear, um, the 28th is going to fall back on the exact same symbols that they've always used as an organization. And, uh, you know, in October, uh, they're going to adopt that red keystone to denote the 28th division. Um, and, you know, I, I, we talked a little bit about Ford before we uh, popped the cameras rolling, too. Uh, they even used a pretty complex divisional marking system, uh, which uh, I'll show for your YouTube viewers here. Um, but each uh, element of the division had their own colored keystone uh, that denoted um, who they were. So just like today, when we throw our barracks bags on the truck and we're, we get to the, the download point, they're all mixed together. We got to, we got to organize them, you know, at that time, uh, every barracks bag in the 28th division would be marked with a colored keystone. For example, the, uh, the 111th infantry was a blue keystone with a white border and a small red, uh, what looks almost like an artillery shell in the center. Um, and that would have been a, a marking that was used for all the different elements from the sanitary train to the division headquarters. Wow. Fantastic. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to ask the significance. I knew the, um, the keystone, the divisional symbol had, it had a, a Pennsylvania history uh, back behind mm-hmm. it. So thank you for that. So amazing. Awesome. Um, wow. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, God, thanks uh, for taking time out of your evening, out of your, your busy schedule, um, you know, for, for, coming on this this podcast and and talking 28th division um folks i have um i have had this in the works for for months um and aaron has been very good and very patient uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this is so cool and um, um when we stop recording here we'll want to talk about like books and stuff like that so i can get it up sure. on uh, episode notes um absolutely yeah but awesome um all right where should we, um, so Aaron, now, now from the 28th to you, sir, uh, where should we look for you? And, and I know you put up, um, you put up some pretty cool stuff on, on Instagram. So, um, 
anywhere we should look for you there, like with um, the Army uh, leadership development? Sure. Uh, so you could you could follow my work uh, accounts. We were under Leaders Recon uh, on Facebook and Instagram for the Army National Guard's Leader Development Program. Um, or if you want to just see 28 specific nerd stuff, you could follow me. Uh, it's, it's kind of a funny name, but pie pants on uh, Instagram. That's a, that's a story that goes back to Iraq and we'll leave it there. Um, but uh, that is uh, gotcha. you know, where you can find me on Instagram. And I post probably two to three things about the 28th division every week. So you'll find fantastic. It's fantastic stuff. So excellent. All right, guys. All right. All right. So folks, there you have it. Leaders recon and Hi pants on Instagram. We will, and we will leave it there. Although I'm, <laughs> Ooh, I'm dying. I'm dying. But nope, nope. We're going to leave it there. So, um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, all right. And, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop recording here. So, uh, great.